Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, November 19th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Patrick O'Donnell discusses the subjects of his new book, The Unknowns, The Untold Story of America's Unknown Soldier and World War I's Most Decorated Soldiers Who Brought Him Home, and the major World War I battles in which they fought. Thank you. It's, it's an honor to be back here tonight, and it's sort of a special night for me because exactly 14 years ago at this time, I was in Fallujah as Dr. Mirror mentioned, as a combat historian. And I was in a unarmored Humvee. Um, as one Marine said, if Malusia, Fallujah was not hell, it was in the same zip code. <laughs> that's the truth. I was in a platoon that had uh, six men that were killed. Nearly everybody was wounded out of 68 men. There were about 18 standing. And I was one of the lucky ones. And um, that morning, we, um, we had just gotten off of one of the toughest ambushes we had uh, against some Chechens the, the day before. And um, I carried the, the Marine who had been shot in the face, who was the main character of my book, out of a firefight. And that morning, we received word that we we're retrograding out of Fallujah. And that was a very special moment. And we were, we were alive. And I, I'll never forget, we were in these Humvees going through Fallujah. And there was smoking runes. There was explosions going off. There, were, there was AK-47 fire. And all of a sudden, I heard a voice say, hey, Pat. And it was the Humvee behind me. And I looked around, and I couldn't believe it. He goes, Happy birthday. <laughs> that was my birthday. I was 35 years old. And it was my alive day, which is exactly today. So every book I've ever written has found me. We Were One found me. It was about eight best friends, and three had survived the Battle of Fallujah. And the unknowns had found me, too. And it found me through Fallujah. And that's why I told that story. A few years later, the battalion commander of, of Fallujah, Willie Buell, Colonel Willie Buell, had asked me to join them in France to give a tour of France for the Marines. The 5th Marines had been going back to France for the first time in 93 years. They brought back the regimental headquarters, the battle guide on, and they asked me to give a guided tour of Normandy. So we went through Normandy. I, I took them to St. Mary Glees, the site of the 82nd Airborne's uh, great engagement. We went to Omaha Beach. We went to Point de Hoc, where the Rangers scaled the cliff, took out the big guns at Point de Hoc. And we walked around the area, and then we went to the hallowed ground of the Marine Corps, which is a place called Bella Wood. And it's in, in June 1918 that the Marine Corps stopped the Imperial German Army from taking France and uh, Paris. It was, an, it was an epic moment and an epic battle. 
The 2nd Division, which included the 4th Marine Brigade, stopped the German Army at a place called Bella Wood. And we were there with the 5th Marines walking around. These are some of the men that I was in Fallujah with. And we walked around the shell holes of of, uh, Bella Wood. And, you know, it was a really uh, an exceptional experience for me because it was... It was a meeting of the generations. It was a meeting of the generation of Marines that were in Fallujah and the generation of Marines that were in World War I. And it was at that point that I realized that both are largely a forgotten generation. The Doughboy generation of 1917-1918 is a forgotten generation. We walked around those shell holes and I went with the 5th Marines first, and then I went back with the Wounded Warrior Regiment. And some of these men in the Wounded Warrior Regiment had lost their arms and legs. And it was a realization that, you know, Iraq, which was born out of World War I, almost killed me and many of these men. And it was a meeting of that generation that we, as we walked around Bella Wood, that I knew that there was a story. And then... I found out that the first Medal of Honor recipient for the Marine Corps, Ernest A. Jansen, was nearly killed um, leading a bayonet charge against a position on a place called Hill 142. And Hill 142 is the high ground outside of Bella Wood. Had the Germans taken that position, they might have been able to collapse the battle. But Jansen led a bayonet charge that disrupted five German machine gunners that were setting up light machine guns and potentially save the hill, and may have had a lasting effect on the battle itself. I also found out another little piece of information. Ernest A. Jansen was personally selected by General Pershing to be a body bearer for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. First, I wanted to know what was a body bearer. A body bearer is the man that actually carried the personal remains of the Unknown Soldier back. But I also found out there were seven, there were a total of eight men, and I knew right then and there that this is a story that found me. I wanted to know who those other eight men were. Tonight's program is going to be about those men in the last battles of the war, in their last battles of the war. Pershing selected them for a specific reason, to tell the story of the American Expeditionary Forces. It's not just a Marine that was selected. It was the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps, but within that designation of services were were each combat branch or service branch specialization. It was the combat engineers, the field artillery, the big guns known as the coast artillery, the infantry, even the cavalry. And each one of these men told a story of America's role in World War I. And it was done, they were deliberately selected for their records. In many cases, these men were Medal of Honor recipients, but also the story that they had to tell, which is exceptional in many cases. And this book is about their stories. It's a narrative history of World War I through their eyes. It's a story of the unknown soldier, a narrative history of the unknown soldier with hitherto, hitherto had really never been told in a narrative history format. And these men all come together at the end of the war to bring back our greatest greatest soldier, the unknown soldier. It's a story of that 
of that memorial, too. Um, so this story really begins for tonight's presentation on October 26, uh, on September 26, 1918, during our greatest battle, the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. And this is America's largest battle, but also its bloodiest battle. Eventually, there were 1.2 million Americans that were involved in this battle, enormous in size and scale. 26,000 Americans died in the Meuse-Argonne. And to give you a perspective on this, if you've ever seen the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, where the men get out of the landing craft and they have to assault bunkers and fixed positions, that's what these men went through for 47 days. Without body armor, without any of the modern um, equipment that we have today, pretty much, just rifles and hand grenades and some machine guns and artillery. But they also had to face the persistent danger of poison gas constantly. This was pure hell. And what these men went through was extraordinary. This is a story about America's forgotten and lost generation, the World War I generation, the Doughboys, that went from the size of, you know, I mean, the American army in 1917 was the size, roughly, of the Belgian army, which was about 15th or 16th in the world, about 225,000 Americans. It eventually would go, grow to over 3 million Americans under arms, an enormous amount of growth and experience. And these men in the Meuse-Argonne were in the forefront of that attack, and they were going against the most experienced army of the world at the time, the German Imperial Army, who was absolutely superb and largely unbeaten. And they were going against um, natural fortifications, natural positions. One comparison was the wilderness in the Civil War, but one general said that that was a park compared to the Meuse-Argonne because the Germans had taken three years at their, at their own pace to defend it to the hilt. They had three defensive positions or lines that were made of um, in concrete barbed wire, multiple interlocking fields of fire with machine guns and artillery pieces. And somehow this generation had to fight through it. And the first story that I'm gonna tell tonight is Harry Taylor. And Harry Taylor was one of the body bearers in the unknowns. And Taylor's story, I, I've always been so interested in Taylor's story because it was a surprise to me. I found out that Taylor was a, a cowboy. He grew up in the West in Wyoming, and he was practically born in the saddle. And um, expert horseman, he was great with the saber, and he was a cavalryman. Believe it or not, in World War I, we had cavalry. And, and Taylor's job in the 91st Division, the Wild Westerners, and this is the nine states as well as the Alaska Territory at the time of World War I, his job was to raise this unit and bring it up to standards. He was an experienced soldier, an NCO, that had fought in the Philippines and other, in other battles, and his job was to bring these men up to speed, up to snuff, and to train them. But he was also mounted. He was part of the headquarters troop. And their war begins on September 26th, 
the beginning of this amazing and incredible offensive where the guns, more ammunition was expended during the first few hours of the Meuse-Argonne than the entire Civil War in the first few hours where they drenched the German lines with heavy artillery. They pelted it, and these men went over the top at dawn on the 26th, and they charged forward. And interestingly enough, the Germans were smart. They, they, they pulled out of their front-line positions because they knew that they would get hit by the infantry as well as the artillery. They pulled back, and Taylor and his men encountered largely um, empty positions. They found a, a, a terrier, believe it or not, that was just happy to see them as they were pushing through the lines. But it was, in, it was a few hours later that they encountered their first German machine gun nest. And as they were, they were hit by this German machine gun nest, American innovation kind of takes place. The, um, the wild Westerners, they don't attack it from the front. They attack it from the flanks. They, they organize themselves into a 13-man gang where they have about five or six men with what's known as a show-show machine gun that pins down the position. And they have men with uh, grenades that fire grenades into this position from a rifle. And then they hit it from the flanks and take it out. And they took out many of these machine guns. And they pushed forward into a place called Eppenville. And it's here that they, they seize the town. And they're, they're, they, you know, they have some resistance, but they seize the town. And that night, the Germans counterattack. And they take back much of the town. They, 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 they slay many of these wild Westerners, these, these men um, of the West. And they, re, they retake many of the positions that they had held that day. And that, that night, and that, that next day, they, they, they go over the top again. And they have to actually call in their own artillery to dislodge the Germans on top of their heads. And this results in fratricide. Many men are, dead, are killed from our own artillery. Um, and it's a bloody hand-to-hand affair as they seize, they retake the town. And here, the wild Westerners are faced with the deadly effects of poison gas. And this is phosgene gas, which if it gets in the lungs, it'll kill you, as well as something called mustard gas, which is kind of little droplets of oil that gets on the skin and will irritate and force you, in some cases, to actually take off your mask, which will expose you to the phosgene. And if it gets in your lungs, it will kill you. And these men literally had to fight in their masks. I mean, picture your peripheral vision obscured by a a gas mask, you know, your uh, phlegm uh, running down your your face, from the uh, nose clip on your on your nose, um, your, the eyepiece is fogging up. Many of these men had to literally sleep in their gas masks as they were being hit by poison gas constantly for hours and counterattacked by the Germans. And they were also expected to somehow, um, you know, survive with very few uh, rations. They went in with um, some about a day's worth of rations and no water, and they found themselves going to a stream that was polluted and contaminated by runoff from the shells 
Many of the men would have uh, lasting effects from, from you know, drinking this polluted water. Uh, but they continued to fight on. And then they were faced with an impossible challenge. The, um, the, entire, the entire offensive um, was based on moving forward. And they were ordered to seize a place called Gessny, which was a main hub in what was known as the Hindenburg Line, or a, a subline within the Hindenburg Line in the Argonne, Meuse-Argonne. And the Hindenburg Line was some of the most heavily defended positions in the entire Western Front. The, the Germans had taken years to defend this position. And Gessny was a, a node within that line. And there were fixed bunkers everywhere. The men would literally have to go across a mile of open ground and face German bunkers everywhere. And their commander was a guy by the name of Gatling Gun Parker. And Parker had received his renown from San Juan Hill, where he had used the Gatling gun as an indirect or sort of an artillery weapon, in a way, to keep the heads down of the, of the, um, the men, that the enemy forces that he was facing. So he really knew full well the effects of the machine gun and how devastating it would be to his men, as well as artillery and poison gas and the fact that they had to go across open ground. <clears throat> and he initially protested and said, look, this is, this is an impossible mission. It can be taken, but it will cost you nearly the entire regiment to do it. And his commanding officer said, look, you must take Gessny at all costs. Our position is holding up the entire offensive. We must take it. And what he was going against was the greatest German, one of the great German uh, regiments and divisions of the, of the war, the First Prussian Guards, which were an elite unit that had fought very valiantly and effectively on the Western Front. And he knew that he was facing a near impossible task. But he ordered his men to get ready. And that afternoon on the 29th of September, they prepared to get ready. Parker put himself in the front along with Taylor. They were in a front-line position. And literally about four minutes before the attack, it was called off. But he was in the front position, so the word never reached him. They ordered the charge to go. And as my, the men in my book have related, it was the charge of the light brigade. They pushed forward. Many of the men were uh, shot down by Maxim machine guns that the Germans had held. They pushed forward into the vortex of battle. They faced an FT-17 tank that literally had, the day before, had been one of Patton's tanks, and the Germans had captured it, and they had turned the guns against us. And as they were charging forward, they were able to rip the hatches open with their bayonets and drag the German soldiers out of the tank and then turn the guns back around on Gessny. And the men continued to charge forward. Parker, who was kind of in this vortex of battle, was surrounded by Germans and began to burn his personal papers because he felt he was going to be captured. But the men continued to charge forward, and they seized the town. An amazing, amazing feat of arms. And they also disabled many field artillery pieces that were in the town that were directed against us. But these men had been starving for three days. They also found a cabbage patch and literally were taking raw cabbage, dirt and all, with worms and eating it because they were starving to death. 
but they were, they were holding the town. But fate intervened. The division on their right and left was basically eviscerated by the Germans, which counterattacked. The 35th Division on their left flank was made up of National Guard members and was attacked, counterattacked by the Germans and evaporated. Their flanks were now exposed to a German counterattack. They were about to be surrounded. So all of this incredible effort was in vain, and they were ordered to pull back that night. And there was a rainstorm, and the scenes of carnage are unbelievable as these men are being rained upon. The wounded are screaming and dying, and they're pulling men out under this, this incredibly horrific condition. But that's just one of the stories of these body bearers in the unknowns. It's also about the stories of the Navy, interestingly enough, the men that transported the army over. And in that position, one of the, bat- the last battles of the war, or one of the, in the last closing months of the war, was a story of the USS Mount Vernon, which was a troop ship. And body bearer uh, Charles Leo O'Connor was on board that ship, and he had one of the dirtiest jobs in the Navy. His job was to, to shovel coal in the bowels of the Mount Vernon. And he was shoveling coal in the troop ship. The Mount Vernon has a very interesting story in history. Initially, it was a German uh, ocean liner that at the beginning of the war had attempted to seek safe passage in the United States to avoid the French and German Navy. And it docked in Maine, and there was the, 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 their, their hope was that they could avoid the menace of the French and, and, and Royal Navy. And as it docked there, it, the United States at the time, in 1914, 1915, was a neutral power. So it was, it was seized. The ship was seized. The men were, were captured on board the ship, including civilians. But the ship had a very interesting story. It was nearly the size of the Titanic, so it was a giant um, ocean liner. And at this time, the United States had very few um, ocean-going uh, ships. Our Navy had been very depleted, and we had very few transport ships. But the real prize, if you will, was that this German ship was carrying $10 million in gold bullion. So it didn't last, it didn't last too long before the United States Navy seized it, along with the gold. And it was repurposed, and it was renamed the USS Mount Vernon. And it was going across the Atlantic, transporting troops. And it was on its sixth voyage in September 1918. And it was bringing back the wounded from France back to the United States. And many of these men were very severely wounded, but they were also carrying influenza. And the ship was a plague ship. It was literally the decks. They were trying to contain this plague. As it was racing through the, the decks of the ship, it was, it, was, it was killing many of the wounded. It was potentially affecting the, the, the crew. But then in September, as they were you know, transporting their way back to the United States, disaster happened. A U-boat fired a torpedo into the bowels of that ship, and it nearly ripped it apart. And it, it, was, it hit the boiler room right where Charles Leo O'Connor was shoveling coal. And O'Connor, his training went into, into practice quickly. He had a decision to make. 
does he save the men in his boiler room or does he save his ship? Meanwhile, his entire body is nearly burned. He's burned alive by ash and soot from the boiler. And the scalding water that's coming out of these uh, these boilers. And he makes a split-second decision to to close the, the watertight door that will seal the compartment and potentially kill him but save his ship. Closes the door, he saves the ship, and miraculously he scrambles out of the, of, the, um, of the compartment. But at great cost. I mean, this is a man that is burned alive from the hot water in the boilers. And then they have to deal with the U-boat because they know that, it, that no uh, um, you know, Allied ship had ever survived two torpedo hits. They take evasive action, and they fire upon the U-boat, and they they basically they stave off a, another torpedo attack. The U-boat um, basically submerges and disappears. But that is another story that's in the unknowns. And as we come back to the Muse-Argon again, where... You know, the Wild West Division has this incredible carnage at a place called Gessney. The entire Muse-Argon offensive at the end of September is bogging down. The men are making very few gains. There's chaos. There's mud. There's rain. The Germans are counterattacking. They're able to basically consolidate their position. The German commander at the time is sanguine. He feels that, you know, we're safe. We're able to reinforce this area and protect it. He feels good about his position. General Pershing is about to be relieved of his command by the French. There's real question whether or not he can command. And there's a pause ordered of several days as they reorganized the American position. The American troops, which initially begins at about 225,000 Americans, swells to several hundred thousand Americans that are now attacking the German positions, frontal assaults in many cases against picture saving, you know, the opening scene of saving Private Ryan on D-Day. These men are going up against these fixed positions, these bunkers, day after day. Casualties are enormous. They're taking literally feet, if they're lucky, a mile of territory as they reorganize. And then... One of our great divisions, which includes many of the body bearers in this book, the second division, is taken from what's known as the San Mihal Offensive that takes place several weeks earlier. And the French command asked for them to be used against another impossible mission, a place called Mont Blanc. And Blanc Mont is, is impregnable. The French had, had spent three years... To, to try to take this, this uh, fortress, which is a, a, a small series of hills that are re- relatively uh, two or 300 feet high, but they're dug in positions, bunkers everywhere. There is machine guns in a small sector. There's over four or 500 machine guns alone, along with over 100 artillery pieces. And for the last three years of war, the French army has tried to assault this position to no avail. There have literally been tens of thousands 
of French casualties in front of Blancmont. And the, the French ask us to somehow um, take this position. And the Marine Corps, the second division is led by a Marine, um, uh, General Lejeune, who the camp is now named after. And he says that he can take it. And they can take it, um, you know, with overwhelming force. They, they array on October 3rd. They array the division in front of um, Blancmont. And they assault it kind of in a, um, a diagonal uh, manner where the Army is on one side and the Marine Corps is on the left. There's something called Viper Woods in the middle of these two units. And the men assault in a diagonal direction right across another mile of open ground. And it's here that we have an amazing story of a New Yorker, Frank Bart, who's just a, um, who's a, who's a courier or a, a man that is, that is a messenger. And, and this is some of the, this is one of the toughest jobs in the Army or the Marine Corps to deliver messages, you know, in and around the battle. And these men have to carry hand-delivered notes as the battle is raging, <clears throat> and Bart is near the position on the hill, and he's delivering a message, and all of a sudden, a company of the 9th Regiment is held up by several machine gun nests. The machine gunner in front of him who's carrying what's known as a show-show automatic rifle, which is not, is not known for its reliability, is, is slain in front of his eyes, and he picks up the machine gun and charges forward and takes out the first nest and allows A Company to move forward. And A Company includes a very important man who's also covered in the unknowns. His name is Edward Younger. And Sergeant Edward Younger is a Chicagoan. And later in this story, Edward Younger will be the man that selects America's unknown soldier. And as A Company moves forward, they seize the high ground along with the Marine Corps on the left-hand side. They have to take care of something called an Essen hook, which is a series of trench lines. But they push forward. They're hit by gas, machine gun fire. And miraculously, they take out this, this ridge. And you know many of the Germans are inside of bunkers at the time. And it's, a, it's hand-to-hand combat on top of the ridge. But this is an objective that had been denied the French for over three years. And miraculously, the second division seizes it, and they take the ridge with, you know, valiant acts from Sergeant Younger, from, you know, Frank Bart, and many of the Marines on the left-hand side, and they seize the ridge, and they take it. And the next morning, they're ordered to, to jump off again after they take the ridge. And it's the same story as the 91st Division. They push forward, but the French aren't keeping up on their flanks, and they're about to be annihilated. And literally, the Germans attack from three sides in a position known as the box. And the box is a kill zone. And the 5th Marines, which the unknowns is a, ma- a major part of this book is a kind of band of brothers on what's known as the 49th company of one five or the fifth Marines. They're pushing forward and they're in the box and they're hit being hit from each side by the Germans and counterattacked and they, the men barely hold. And as they push forward into a town called 
Sane and Ten, um, they're pushed back. And it's an incredible story of um, Marines that are literally breaking under fire. Several of the officers have to pull out their 45 pistols to prevent the other officers and men from fleeing. But they hold in line, they hold in place, and in many cases, they are nearly destroyed. And it is a, an incredible carnage. And here, um, as they are arrayed in front of the next German defensive line, um, one of the great stories of another body bearer in this book, Sergeant Thomas Saunders, who's a full-blooded um, Cheyenne Indian, who's given the impossible task of breaching the wire. He's a combat engineer, and his job is to snip or cut the wire, as well as kind of move his reconnaissance force in front of everybody um, to, to scout out positions. He moves forward and receives another decoration from his efforts there. And they move and they pierce. Eventually, the Americans pierce the next defensive line. And this is one of the great, um, the, one of the great achievements. The French army considers Blancmont one of the great achievements of the entire 1918 campaign because they had pierced the line in a key strong point and literally forced the Germans back many, many kilometers and, and ruptured a key point in the Hindenburg line, an impossible position that had taken three years to breach. The second division takes it along with several of these body bearers as well as the man who would later select the unknown soldier, which leads to body bearer um, Samuel Woodfell, who Pershing would consider the greatest soldier of the American Expeditionary Forces because of what Samuel Woodfill, a Medal of Honor recipient in the 5th Division, would do. And it's the middle of October. The, um, the Meuse-Argonne had bogged down significantly, and Samuel Woodfill and his small company of men, he's basically a sergeant, but he's promoted to captain, and he's leading a company of men, and his job is to conduct what's known as reconnaissance and force with his company. They're to go into the heart of the Hindenburg line at a place called Cunell. And they go over the top. And, I mean, it's a a story of human survival because the day before, Samuel Woodfill is literally sleeping in a shell hole filled with three feet of water. Can you imagine that? I mean, no tent, nothing. Sleeping in a shell hole three feet of water and then literally having hundreds of lice on his body crawling up his neck. And that is the situation that he found himself in. And many of these men, because they had not taken any kind of showers for, for weeks on end. And they were fighting to the death in these shell holes. And his job was to conduct this reconnaissance in force. He leads his company out, and many of his men are taken out by German artillery. There are snipers that take out his men. He finds himself out front. Many of his men have, um, have been killed behind him. He stumbles into a shell hole that is filled with mustard gas. Mustard gas is persistent. Literally, it can stay in the hole for days at a time. Stumbles in upon it, and he gets a face full of mustard gas, and he pushes forward, though. He doesn't, he's not able to push his gas mask on because he's getting hit by, by snipers as he's pushing forward. He has an 03 Springfield rifle, and he takes out 
a sniper, which had a, a German machine gun and a bell tower. Uh, he kills him with a single shot, and he kills another man, continues to push forward. He takes out another machine gun nest single-handedly. A few of his men kind of follow up behind him as he pushes forward into this you know, heavily defended area. Another machine gun nest he takes out. You know, Germans are literally trained as one man um, is taken out to another German comes up and, and seizes the gun and continues to fire upon uh, Woodfield's men. They continue, he takes out that machine gun nest, and it's at this point that he stumbles upon roughly his fourth machine gun nest, and Woodfield is in hand-to-hand combat with the German machine gunners. His Most of his rifle ammunition has been expended. He's practically blind from the mustard gas from the shell hole, and he takes his forty-five pistol, and a German is about to kill him, and he fires the pistol, and it jams, and he is about to be killed himself, and there's a, miraculously, there is a pickaxe next to him, and he slays the German soldier with the pickaxe and kills him. And his, his men continue to push on, and he eventually gets out of this incredibly perilous mission. Many of his men are killed, and um, he, he pulls back. But this is just, I mean, the, these are the stories in the unknowns. It's men that are facing impossible, it's a, it's a, it's a book about human endurance, resilience, and surviving impossible odds. And the men are then tasked with the last leg of what's known as the Meuse-Oregon Offensive, which begins on November 1st. And the General Pershing wants to punish Germany. He wants unconditional surrender. President Wilson demands an armistice, but he knows that if, if, if he's not able to punish the Germans, there's a potential, or at least he's, he believes that there's a possibility for another world war. So he orders his men to gain as much ground as possible. And their goal in the Smith-Argonne offensive is to sever the rail line at a place called Sudan, which basically feeds the entire, it's the main artery that feeds the entire Western Front. If they're able to cut that line, it'll collapse Germany. And they continue to push forward. The body bearers in this book, many of them are involved in the second division, they, they, they gain incredible ground, I mean, six miles on the first day alone, as they saturate the Germans <coughs> with high-explosive artillery, as well as mustard gas and phosgene gas. They literally saturate the trenches, and they continue to push forward. And many of the men um, in the unit are, 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 are basically um, dealing with influenza. Influenza is racing through the uh, trenches on the American and German side. Many of the men are sick. In one unit alone, for the Marines, the 70% of the men have influenza. Um, One-fourth of the entire American expeditionary force would get influenza, and over 44,000 would die from it. It was an incredibly deadly um, plague that would kill millions of Americans, I should say millions worldwide. They don't even know the numbers in Asia or India, how many people were killed by influenza. 
and the pandemic of, of 1918, 1919. The men continue to for, push forward, and it's at the last day, the, last, the day before the war, that they're given instructions on a day that's really very tragic. All of the body bearers, many of them come together at a single point to cross the Meuse River, and Pershing is obsessed with punishing the German army and getting into German territory, crossing the Meuse. And the men on November 8, uh, 10th are literally ordered to cross the Meuse River, an assault crossing of this river. And it's, it's incredibly perilous to conduct an amphibious operation in, in, in nighttime and under, um, you know, the conditions of, of many of the men had been plagued by the influenza they had to deal with German machine guns on the other side as well as artillery. And it's here that Thomas Saunders and A Company of the 2nd Engineer Regiment basically have to build rickety wooden ladders that are footbridges to cross this thing. And that night, they, um, they assemble the, um, the wood from a captured German barracks, and they build kind of ladder-like, these ladder-like footbridges and they move them towards the Meuse River under the cover of darkness. And the 1-5 or the 5th Marines move in, along with the field artillery from uh, James W. Dell, who's another body bearer that I haven't discussed. Thomas Saunders is building the bridges. And Sergeant Younger is providing covenant covering fire at the Meuse River. And these men gather on the night of November 10th. And many of the Marines know, the experienced Marines know, that it's a pure lie. They're told that they're going to transport ammunition to the 89th Division. They know that they're going to make an assault crossing. They also, they also there's rumors that are swirling that the armistice is near. No one wants to be the last man to die before the war um, ends. But they continue to, to do their duty. They move down towards the river. Um, there's chaos down the river at, at, at the riverbank as they, they, they assemble these footbridges. German artillery pelts the area. Fog sets in, luckily that saves many of the lives because it strains the movement of the men as they try to push the footbridges across the river. And um, George Hamilton, who's with the 49th Company, and Jansen's unit, who I follow through the entire war, is leading the attack, and men are scurrying about. He's trying to find the, the footbridge, and he captures a, an engineer, literally puts a 45 to his back and says, take me to the footbridge. They push forward. German artillery is falling. There's machine guns everywhere. They push the footbridge across with an engineer, they tie it down, and the men go across the bridge, and German shells are falling everywhere. Men are dying as they cross the footbridge, but they make it across, and at that point, they are under siege, basically, for the next several hours until November, the 11th hour of November 11th, when the, the war ends. They're, they're literally fighting until the last minute of the war. Many men are dying as well. 400 Americans die at that point. But they somehow survive. All of these men then come together in 1921. In, 19, in 1921, the unknown soldier is a foreign concept to the United States. France and England 
have unknown soldiers. It's a, um, a New Yorker, Marie Maloney, who has a magazine called The Delineator that puts out a letter that says, look, we need to have what the French and English have, a tomb of the unknown soldier. The War Department demurs. There's 2,600 Americans that are listed as unknown. And eventually she creates a movement. The New York Times and many others back Marie Maloney. And a New Yorker, Hamilton Fish, who's a famous congressman from Harlem, who at the time of the war, during the time of the war, was a, an, a white officer in a black unit, in Puerto Rican unit, known as the Harlem Hellfighters. And that was a very distinguished unit. And Fish wanted to honor his men, as well as other Americans that had, had served during the war. He championed a bill for the unknown soldier. And President gets through Congress. President Wilson signs it. There is a designation for a tomb in Arlington Cemetery. And then in October 1921, the four great cemeteries of France where most of our battles raged. At the Meuse-Argonne, there's a, a, a remarkable cemetery. At Belleau Wood, at Saint-Mihel, and at the Somme where we fought with the British, Bodies are removed that are unknown, unknown soldiers. They're carefully checked to see if there's any kind of um, identification, dog tags, paperwork, diaries, anything. Carefully checked, removed from their graves. Nothing's there. They then burn the grave registration cards that designates where these men came from, the exact plots. The bodies are then carefully removed and to uh, Shalom, France, where they're then greeted by an honor guard of French soldiers that had fought in the toughest combat, along with French civilians, who many of their men, you know, their, their sons had died in combat. And a small um, honor guard of Americans, including Edward Younger, who, were, who was part of the occupation duty at the time, were there to transport the body. And it was here that night... In October 1921, that a general officer from the American Army was then going to select the unknown soldier. The French said, wait, we used an enlisted man, a, a man that had done the fighting, to select our unknown soldier. And it, that night, an enlisted man was chosen, and that was Edward Younger from Chicago. And Edward Younger was not the most decorated man in the uh, American Expeditionary Forces his, real, his claim to fame was he had been in most of the combat, though. And with the 9th Infantry Regiment and his story, which I follow in the unknowns, he had been in the thick of the fighting. And he had suffered two combat wounds. He had received wound chevrons, which were effectively the Purple Heart, a precursor to the Purple Heart, and was selected to give the honor. And I found Edward Younger's original thoughts that night. And it was, an, you know, incredible. He realized the gravity of the situation, that he was going to be the one that chose the unknown soldier. He walked into the room that day and described the four flag-draped caskets in front of him as sublime. As he walked in the room, uh, Chopin's um, funeral dirge was playing. There were some rose petals on the floor, and he was quite nervous. 
because he didn't know what he was going to do. Prayed. He was given a clutch of roses, of white roses, and told to select the unknown soldier from that group of caskets. And literally, after he prayed, he circled the casket, and his arm moved to the casket on his right, and he felt that that was a man that had died next to him in combat. And he placed the roses on the casket, and that is America's unknown soldier. Thank you very much. Happy to take your questions. So uh, good evening, everyone. I'm Alex Cashel, manager of public programs. So Patrick O'Donnell did ask me to join him on stage to ask your questions that you have given us. Uh, I do still have colleagues coming through the auditorium. If you do have a question, uh, they'll be handing me additional questions throughout the talk. But uh, we have about 10, 15 minutes to go through some of these. So uh, I'll start with the first one. So it seems that modern scholarship takes general Pershing General Pershing at all to task for not learning from the Allied British experience at Musargan uh, and attacked unprepared. Do you agree? Pershing is a um, an interesting character, and the book gets into the the evolution of American tactics. At the beginning of the war, Pershing looked at the machine gun as an auxiliary weapon. He looked at the rifleman as superior which was very fatally flawed in the sense that, you know, he didn't understand the notion of what's known as now combined arms, where we take tanks, artillery, planes, poison gas in World War I, and infantry and combine them to all work in unison. It was some of his subordinates, like Charles P. Summerall, who I bring out in this book, that really, um, you know, brought Pershing along. Pershing's great asset, though, was his ability to organize men. And he was one of the, the best at that. He was able to build this American expeditionary force overnight. And he was relentless. He was also relentless in his role as a diplomat. He literally had, for the first time in American history since George Washington, had to deal with true alliances. He had to deal with the French and the, and the British that were literally trying to constantly tear apart the American expeditionary force and break it down into you know, comp, you know, battalion or company-sized elements so it could be used as cannon fodder. But he was given one iron rule, which is to, to basically to fight as an intact army. And Wilson was very smart in this, that he realized that if, if the American expeditionary forces fought as a single army or largely intact force, it would have an influence at the table after the war, which it did. Okay, with poison gas, trenches, and U-boats, World War I was technologically unlike any other that preceded it. How did the U.S. armed forces prepare and train their soldiers for the horrors that they would see? The training was um, inadequate in many cases. The, um, at the beginning of the war, many of its, it, much, much of its training was from the French, and it, it, their, their training was um, double-edged, to say the least. In many cases, for instance, at Bella Wood, under French command, they were ordered to, to, to attack in battalion-sized formations where it was a series of waves. And the notion there was that eventually, if there are four waves of men, the final wave would get through, which was fatally flawed, compared to... What we now know is, is German infiltration tactics or stormtrooper tactics were small groups of men 
would take out isolated positions with flanking fire, etc. What we see here in World War I is American innovation at its best. The regular doughboy or enlisted man, even if they were faced with um, you know, poor tactics from above, were able to innovate. And I think that that's a really extraordinary story in and of itself. What were the criteria for choosing the body bearers, and why was Senator uh, Sergeant Dan Daly, its most iconoclastic Marine, not chosen? The, the, um, the men were chosen um, uh, by a series of criteria. The, 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 the most basic thing was that they wanted people that were six feet tall. They wanted men that looked good. Okay? But they also wanted men that were highly decorated and... They wanted men that were still in the Army, Marine Corps, or the Navy at the time. And this is 1921. And they wanted men that were, um, that were from each service branch. They wanted um, a Marine. They wanted uh, somebody from the Navy, in this case, two people from the Navy, as well as the, um, the Army. But within that, they also wanted um, the combat specialization sort of represented Pershing was an old cavalry guy, and he wanted a cavalryman, um, even though that was practically, I mean, totally obsolete at the time. But he has a cavalryman. He has a combat engineer. He has the field artillery, another forgotten aspect of World War I, and something called the coast artillery, which is these rail guns in many cases or the, the heavier guns that are out there. So they chose men... <coughs> That, that had um, met the first criteria, had great service records that were still in, and then they gave them to Pershing. And in many cases, Pershing knew some of the men. He actually knew Ernest A. Jansen, who he pinned the Medal of Honor on. Dan Daly was an amazing, amazing Marine who had received two Medal of Honors prior to World War I. And he was... He was even put in for the third, his third Medal of Honor, but they just felt uh, this guy's already received two. He doesn't need another. And he received a Distinguished Service Cross at Bella Wood. And, I mean, his, his story is inc- incredible. But Pershing knew um, Jansen uh, from, from his Medal of Honor experience, and he was chosen from that respect. So we got, we got two similar questions. I'll combine them for you. So was there a tradition of memorials for the unknown soldiers prior to World War I? And if so, what was its origin? Its origin, as I mentioned, it comes first from France and then second from the British. The, uh, that's where this entire tradition comes out uh, or comes to be. It's, they, you know, they're literally in World War I, there are, tens of thousands of Frenchmen and Englishmen that are unidentified. The, the heavy artillery mutilates bodies, it disintegrates men, and there are unknowns all over the place. But the French decide to select a single individual to honor all of those who have served and all of those who have died, and they select their, the, an unknown, and then the, the, the British follow suit. What was the public response to the burial of the unknown soldiers? The, the, um, the, the burial of the ceremony itself is a remarkable event. It's a means, it's a way to bring the entire country together, to heal it from this epic war where there are many, many um, Americans that are killed. 
It's also a way to sort of heal society. That's the way it was looked upon. Because you have um, the ceremony itself that brings together many, um, in some cases, disparate groups. There's the NAACP that's brought together. There's the DAR. But then there's also um, the Medal of Honor recipients from the Civil War and all other wars. So you have this like incredible phalanx of heroes that are marching behind the casket from America's wars that represent it, as well as other walks of society. And I think the, the really the, the most incredible scene is where they choose the last man to give, or the last person to actually to, to de- make a dedication at the tomb. And it's, it's Chief Plenty Clues, who's a Native American that had fought against the United States, that has given the final honors of saying some words as the, as the, um, the remains are finally interred at Arlington. And, and dirt from France is then, like, pushed upon the casket. And Plenty Clues literally puts his, um, his war hammer that he had fought in battle on top of the, the casket. And I think it's an incredible sense of healing because you have him and then you have Thomas Saunders, who's a you know, 100% a Cheyenne warrior that's represented in the, um, in, the, in the burial itself as well. We have time for just one more question, and I'm once again going to combine because a few of you have asked this. And I do think it's a nice place to end as well. What happened to the body bearers in the years that followed the dedication of the memorial. We, um, I follow many of these men um, in, the, in, in the final years after the war. And, um, for instance, Samuel Woodfill is brought out of retirement. But he, he, he suffers from what we now know as PTSD. But he also suffers from uh, chronic unemployment. And in many cases, he's, you know, his home is about to be foreclosed upon. And, you know, poverty. And he's rescued uh, right before World War I. The United States is going into war. He and Sergeant York are brought out of retirement, and they're given, um, you know, they're made majors, basically. And they're, they then are initially there to train our boys for World War I and then also raise money for war bonds. Uh, many of these men, though, they just they, they move off into obscurity. Um, Ernest A. Jansen is from Brooklyn, and he dies in the late 1920s. Uh, many of the men, though, this, they just fade away. And this is the first time that their story has been told. And what I, you know, for me, what was really um, humbling and an honor was I was invited to the, the Honor Guards reunion. And these men had been, they have a reunion every two years. They invited me to their reunion. I was, um, I was made an honorary member I was taken down into the tomb itself, and below the tomb is, is their ready room where they, they, they prepare. I mean, they, these men prepare for three hours at a time in front of mirrors to have everything perfect. But part of their training is also the history of the tomb. And I felt, you know, the great honor for me was that they, the body bearer's story had not been told until the unknowns, and that is going to be incorporated into their, their training. Well, thank you for telling their story. Great to be here. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.